Okay, Lonnie, so I had this idea for what we can call it when we hate shadow Xander behavior. Oh, awesome. What is it? Hit me. Misandry. Oh, like misandry. Right. Except we don't hate men. We hate shadow Xander. I love it. That's awesome. But of course, let's be clear. We don't hate men. Well, well, just the men that Buffy dates. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Because they're fucking awful. Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. I'm film scholar and potential anointed one, Noelle LaCroix. <laughs> I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And we're here today to talk about Never Kill a Boy on the First Date, the fifth episode of season one. Never Kill a Boy on the First Date was written by Dean Batali and Rob Des Hotel and directed by David Samuel. A warning before we begin, every episode of Still Pretty talks about each episode within the greater context of all of Buffy, and as such, they are fully spoiled. So if you haven't watched the whole thing, you may want to do that and then come back. All right, let's go on patrol. In Never Kill a Boy on the First Date, Buffy slays a vampire in the graveyard. While Giles critiques her form, he finds a ring with a signet. Oh, that's great. I kill him, you fence their stuff. Underground, the master and his minions speak of a prophecy that says an anointed one will lead the slayer into hell. Meanwhile, Buffy recognizes the symbol on the ring. I told you it looked familiar. Oh, the Order of Aurelius. Yes, you're right. Ooh, two points for the Slayer, while the Watcher has yet to score. A big sack of mashed potato named Owen walks into the library and makes Buffy want to read Emily Dickinson to impress him, which is the most evil thing in this episode. He reads Emily Dickinson? He's sensitive yet manly. Ugh. The mashed potato asks Buffy to the bronze, but Giles' research shows that an ancient prophecy will be fulfilled that night, and Buffy needs to stop it. When the anointed fails to rise, Buffy runs off to meet Owen over Giles' objections. If your identity as a slayer is revealed, it could put you and all those around you in grave danger. Well, in that case, I won't wear my button that says, I'm a slayer, ask me how. At the bronze, Buffy sees Owen dancing with Cordelia and leaves. Meanwhile, there's a creepy guy being creepy on a bus, but it's the vampire that stands in the road and crashes the bus that's the real danger. Are you all right? Can you move? At school the next day, Owen asks Buffy out and she brushes off Giles' concerns about the rising of the Anointed One so that she can spend time with Potato Boy. When Giles shows up right before her date with a clue about the prophecy, she blows him off and rushes out. And look, I won't go far, okay? If the apocalypse comes, beat me. On her date with the Potato, even Buffy is getting bored with his nonsense, but he's cute, so whatever. Giles decides to investigate his lead at the funeral home and is attacked by vampires. Tam. Angel crashes Buffy's date at the bronze to warn her about the anointed one. And Willow and Xander pop in to report that they really need to go to the funeral home. Owen wants to go, but she ditches him and goes with Willow and Xander to rescue Giles. Despite not being invited, Owen follows her because potato. What are we doing here? Are we going to see a dead body? Possibly several. Buffy finds Giles safe hiding in the morgue and goes off to deal with the vampires. She puts Owen, Xander, and Willow in the morgue office and they barricade the door. Owen pulls the curtain back and finds creepy guy's dead body that rises as a vampire. They remove the barricade and run while the crazy vamp vamps. <laughs> he has risen in me. He fills my head with sorrow. Pork and beans. Pork and beans. Pork and beans? What the hell is... Never mind. 
The vampire attacks, Giles gets knocked out, and Owen jumps in and seems almost like a real person as he fights the vampire off to protect Buffy. But then, this. He tried to bite me. What a sissy. The vampire knocks Owen out with a morgue drawer door, and while Owen's knocked out, Buffy slays. Owen walks off confused, and when Buffy sees him at school the next day, she's happy to know he still wants to date her. Until... I never thought nearly getting killed would make me feel so alive. So that's why you want to be with me. Buffy dumps Owen, and Giles comforts her, happy at least that they stopped the prophecy. But in the master's lair, we see the little boy from the bus being welcomed as the anointed one. Welcome, my friend. Okay, so Noelle, it is my understanding, based on having gone through your notes, yes, that you're not a big fan of this episode. <laughs> I'm not. Um, it it feels like the weakest episode so far. Um, mm-hmm. It sort of feels like a series of vignettes. I mean, we keep the master plot afloat and introduce the anointed one, but that's not until the very end, and it feels sort of clunky and disconnected from the Buffy Owen plot. Mm -hmm. which really feels like it should be a B-plot in a different episode. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, (laughs) I don't know. It just, for whatever reason, it just didn't, it didn't come together for me. Yeah, I think actually that the story structure here works pretty well because we have um, Buffy with her, you know, kind of like internal conflict between her sacred duty as a slayer and her desire for a social life. Um, Had the boy not been a complete potato, then maybe I could have sympathized with that more, but I was definitely rooting team slayer, you know, Mm -hmm. during this. Um, And so the anointed one, it had had Giles not been reading up about the... um, about the anointed one and about the prophecy and the rising and from the ashes of the five and all that kind of stuff. Had that not been in there, had it just been they were chasing some rando vampire instead of trying to stop the anointed one from rising, which is the master's goal, of course, in this episode, then I think I could probably definitely see, you know, see how it feels like, you know, vignettes. But because that's all connected, I feel actually like structurally, it's a pretty good episode. I think the problem for me is that a a good narrative structure is something that kind of like it gives you a base on which to build the fun stuff, you know, the mm-hmm. the jokes and the story and the everything. And I think a lot of stuff in Never Kill a Boy on the First Date just isn't as much fun as Buffy usually is. And especially because nobody cares about Owen. Mm-hmm. Owen is the like the worst from beginning to end. He's just annoying. He has one good moment and then it's immediately undercut by him being just an idiot Mm -hmm. so I don't know like I I feel like I feel like structurally it works pretty well I don't think that that's the problem I think the problem is that it just um it does feel a little bit placeholdery you know until until we get to the end and we see that the little boy is the anointed and that that is something that's going to carry through the season that we're not done telling that story um but but I can see how it it can be like an underwhelming kind of episode well, and I think part of the problem for me also is mm-hmm. that tonally, it seems weird. Um, uh-huh. Buffy herself really feels like a different person in this episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know yeah. that um, they wanted to build up this idea of her, you know, wanting to date and they needed to give her that kind of, um, you know, real focus on this particular boy. But the way she is around Owen, yeah. it kind of feels to me like, Buffy and bumbling Xander switched places. I mean, you know what? A little bit, a little bit. And Owen is so like 
unworthy. And I mean, okay, let's just, you know, many wonderful people are with unworthy people like that happens all the time. And that's very real. But when you're watching a show and you want to like, be on Buffy's side, you know, I mean, on the one hand, like I'm on her side and that she needs to have a life too, like, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's Owen versus your sacred duty. And Owen is just a terrible character. I mean, the only thing he has going for him is that he's cute and it's just simply not enough. And it doesn't make it believable for me. I mean, you know, Buffy's a teenage girl and she's allowed to like a cute boy just because he's cute. I mean, that's fine. But it it makes him less compelling as as part of that internal conflict, I think, for me, because he is such a potato. Mm -hmm. You know, they give him like this whole Emily Dickinson thing and like, oh, he carries a book around. It's kind of like a security blanket. And they bring that back again in season four and the freshman in the opening episode of that season with the character of Eddie when he says he carries a around a copy of On Human Bondage as a quote unquote, you know, security blanket, Um, which is something I think that somebody obviously thought was was charming, you know, (laughs) at one point. Yeah, somebody somebody Um, liked that idea or somebody knew somebody who did that (laughs) and felt that it was it was deep. And to me, it just I don't know, like, I just find it annoying. And also like, and this is just me, I realize that lots of people are big fans of Emily Dickinson. So don't let me, you know, yuck your yum, as as Noah likes to say. Um, But, uh, but I hate Emily Dickinson. I hate Emily Dickinson. (laughs) I think that just because someone broods endlessly about death does not make them deep or necessarily a quality poet. Um, And so that's just that's just me. You know, and that's fine. People out there who love Emily Dickinson, you do you. That's great. Love her enough for both of us. That's always my my feeling on the things that I hate. You love it enough to make up for the fact that I can't even with it. Um, So then the fact that it's Emily Dickinson on top of that makes it even less effective for me. Um, So let me ask you now that I've just slammed all over poor uh, poor Emily. um, Are you an Emily Dickinson fan? I'm not not a fan. Um, Mm -hmm. I read some Emily Dickinson in college. I mean, Mm -hmm. So did well. I think everybody did. So did everybody. In did the, you do it willingly? Yeah. <laughs> so okay. did everyone. I don't know what to say <laughs> about Emily Dickinson that's relevant. That's uh, relevant to this episode, other than you know what right. you already pointed out about you know death and brooding, and that's supposed to make Owen. That's supposed to give Owen seem- this this transitive property of deep, right? Because he's into Emily Dickinson. Yeah, and he's supposed to be like mysterious and. I don't know the way that that Buffy and Willow talk about him. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> I I sort of feel like the script was written with a different kind of performance in mind from Owen. Maybe. Sure. Especially because sure. of the way that Willow talks about him. She's he can brood for 40 minutes straight. I've clocked him. <laughs> like he doesn't look this Owen doesn't doesn't seem broody to me. He seems kind of um empty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's seriously like a, he's a model that they hired to play this role. And now I really want to know if the actor is a model. <laughs> he may well have been. I don't know. Um, he's done actually a fair amount of work. I looked him up on IMDb and he's been he's been working regularly. But but I don't know. But I mean, he's also young and, you know, it's tough in the beginning and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure he's a fine actor, you know, and a, probably a lovely human being. But in this particular performance, it does come off really flat, you know, um, really disaffected. I don't see 
what Buffy sees in him. Although, like, you know, as we look at the series as a whole, you know, there's a point in season four where Spike tells Buffy that she has bleeding tragic taste in men. Yes. And uh, and yeah, yeah, she does. She, she really, really does. does. So if you go through Buffy's, like, romantic history, right, we have um, a character that we're going to see in season two in the episode Lie to Me called Ford, right? Um, and he mm-hmm. was at her school in, in Los Angeles and he ends up transferring up to Sunnydale um and he shows up and he's all charm and snappy patter and all this kind of stuff but he's a big turd and Buffy says in that in that episode that she had a huge crush on him in like the fifth grade right uh-huh so so we see that he is the one who kind of set her up for a series of superficially charming sleaze bags to come um of which we've got Owen who basically is a potato I mean he's not a sleaze bag he's just not interesting and he's got this kind of superficial patina of depth that's sort of painted on him but yet no actual anything to him um we end up with uh with her and Scott Hope in season three um who is a big jerk charms her with uh with Buster Keaton which is something that also Buffy pretends to be interested in and we're all like oh yeah no that's totally fine pretend to be interested in something that you are absolutely not interested in for this boy just because he's cute or whatever um he buys her a clotter ring like right at the beginning I don't even remember if they've actually started dating officially at that point but he buys her a clutter ring which is kind of like I mean it's an Irish wedding ring it's this romantic gesture Um, it is also based on which way it's turning um, you know indicates whether or not you're taken Mm -hmm. Um, so that to me is a little and and the clutter ring is also obviously a reference to Angel and we're going to get to that reference you know as we move forward in the series Um, but then he's so into her and so into her and then he just dumps her like immediately for no discernment reason and then as we find out in conversations with dead people when she speaks to a vampire from her high school um, and discovers that uh, that Scott Hope told everybody that she was gay and did that with all of the girls that he dated in high school and then later came out as gay himself all of it is terrible Scott Hope is the worst Um, (laughs) and then in college we have her you know before her time with Riley which is also highly questionable oh dear we lord have this parker abrams guy who is basically from from the same factory that scott hope came from that owen came from that ford came from um and he's just the complete evolution of douche he leads her on uses her for you know a night's pleasure and then immediately dumps her and acts like why are you acting like it was a big deal you know um so he's a complete jerk um then we've got you know angel who's a good guy you know but a little bit broody so i think angel is is probably out of all the men that she's with probably the best one um but i of course like spike the best as a character and as a story arc um and then you know of course there's spike and spike has has you know his issues as well because he is full-on evil when they are together and she's still with him anyway um so to say that buffy has bleeding tragic taste in men i think is canonically held up yes absolutely Um, but at the same time though, I kind of like, I like, I mean, Buffy is, is inconsistent. I think there are, are, when she's mooning over Owen, it does not feel 
like she would moon over that guy when angels you know in the room with her for 30 seconds there's more heat there's more connection i mean obviously because that's the romance we're going for but her when she's dancing with owen when they're talking and she's checking her pager like she's not interested in him at all and yet we're forced to like kind of believe that she's interested in him which doesn't really follow but i mean aside from that i kind of like the buffy that we get in this episode you know i mean i like the the way that she is with giles i like the fact that she's fighting for what it is that she wants i mean it sucks that it's owen you know true but she's she's really trying to like find a way to to have as normal a life as possible even under these really abnormal circumstances and um and then at the end you know i love that moment with giles where she's she breaks up with owen you know, who still wants to see her, but is like really into the idea of the death and excitement and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. she's she's like, I can't be with him because he'll get himself killed because he's an idiot, you know, um, which is, of course, the subtext. She doesn't say that, but we all know. We all know oh, yeah. that's, that's what it is. Um, and uh, and then, you know, she's sitting with Giles and she's talking about how she's responsible for him going off and like almost getting killed. Um, And she's feeling like this is the beginning of Buffy's weight of the world, you know, thematic, uh, you know, string that runs all the way through the episode is that the weight of the world is on her. She has to make all the decisions. She has to be responsible for everything. And it's completely unfair, but we're seeing that sense of hypervigilance, hyper-responsibility starting in this episode. And that's something that's going to carry through the entire run of the series. So I actually kind of like that. How did you feel about Buffy in this episode? Well, I felt like she... I felt like they really played up the girl with a crush um, yes. idea. Mm-hmm. I did. I really did like her trying to be cool around Owen when she is obviously not cool mm-hmm. around Owen. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, you said it already. The crush feels a little bit empty because he feels a little bit empty. Yeah. And I get a little bit of Shadow Xander from Buffy when uh-huh. um, Giles the exchange with uh, Giles and Owen about Emily Dickinson being a good poet and Buffy says for a girl and Giles uh-huh. says for an American. And right. that felt to me a little bit like the Xander moments of making it about sexism when it was never really part of the conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And then we have, you know, we have some lovely fat shaming moments, you know, she okay. ends that scene with, does this outfit make me look fat? Mm-hmm. And then later in the cafeteria, boy, Cordelia's hips are wider than I thought. And I just thought, really, guys, really? Like, yeah, come this on is now. Where we gotta go. Because that's what girls are about, right? Right. Girls are always about that. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, and especially from Buffy and Cordelia, you know, <laughs> who are these very fit, tiny girls, you know, like they they don't have any fat on them. And so... Uh, that in addition to that like feels because as a woman who has curves and has always had curves when a girl like Buffy you know or a girl like Cordelia has a fat joke you know yeah it makes you feel like well if that's fat you know if if this one is worried about being fat like I'm so far past that I'm never going to be like this is the message that gets sent Mm -hmm. you know like I'm never going to be anything I'm never going to be even in the running for being attractive or any of that because of these things and those are the kinds of like really quiet messages that get sent you know when you're looking for the joke and it is a really easy joke to go to women you know first of all uh, demeaning each other by making fat jokes 
you know, boy, Cordelia's hips are wider than I thought. Like, that's where she goes to slam on mm-hmm. Cordelia. When Cordelia, as wonderful as Cordelia is, and I love Cordelia, has other qualities that you could slam her for. <laughs> you yeah, absolutely. Know? I mean, she's, you know, she's self-centered and she's, you know, kind of rude. And, you know, there's a ton of things. She's, she's privileged and spoiled. There's a million things you can go to with Cordelia. But the one thing they go to is the one thing that all women are constantly slammed with, which is this idea that if you're, if you're at all fat, if there's an ounce of fat on you, you have no value, yeah. you know, and that's really, it's tough. And, you know, and this, this episode written by men, Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like this is this is how girls are, you know, right. and it's not necessarily how girls are. But this idea that we, you know, that we're going to make that we're going to end the scene on that line, you know, yeah. does this outfit make me look fat? Like, OK, first of all, you know, fat is the worst thing that you can be. And second of all, that we like we don't need that. We don't need that joke there. And that's the thing, too. It's a bad joke. It's a creaky joke. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like the, it's, you know, like that thing it's, there's, there's this thing where like the first idea is always going to be trite and shitty, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you could, you do five ideas for everything until you get to one that's good, you know, and the first one's always bad, like the first pancake, you know, so it's like, it's like a first pancake joke. It is the first thing that jumps to mind and it's kind of, it feels lazy. And it feels to me like girls, am I right? You know, like, I just, uh -uh, I don't, I don't like it. Um, yeah. But speaking of girls, there's yes. a really interesting line that jumped out at me when Buffy and Owen are on their date and Owen asks her if she's having fun. Buffy mm-hmm. says, yeah, I almost feel like a girl. Mm-hmm. And that is a record scratch moment for me. But it feels so important to the show and to Buffy's identity. That line just jumped right out at me because mm-hmm. it made me wonder what does Buffy think a girl is? Um, and by extension, what does the show think a girl is? Mm-hmm. And I think I bounce off this line so hard because it suggests girl as a monolith. Um, yeah. I mean, it's gender essentialism, right? It's the implication that if a person doesn't fit the mold for their gender, they're somehow inadequate, that there's this one mm-hmm. way to be a girl. Yes. Um, and it's such an interesting problem for the show in that Buffy is explicitly a girl, you know, one girl in all the world. And yet, Mm -hmm. uh, because of her role as the slayer, she doesn't feel like a girl. She doesn't Mm -hmm. experience herself as part of that gender monolith. And I'm just Mm -hmm. so fascinated. Like, I want to pull Buffy aside in that moment and say, tell me more about that. What 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 does that that feel like? What is that feeling? What is it that she's chasing there right mm-hmm. well I find that really interesting because I hadn't really seen it from that perspective um, when she says I think for me with Buffy the division is always one girl in all the world and a normal girl mm-hmm. like you know and I think the fact that she really does you know she is girly you know I mean she's fashionable she wears dresses you know um, she she does her hair she does her makeup she has jewelry like she very much lives within that classic girl space, you know, um, and, and I think that that's fine. Like the kind of girl that you are, um, we do have this, this monolith, I think that monolith idea, I hadn't heard that before. And I think that's a really interesting one, you know, that there's one way to be a girl, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that traditionally we have had one way to be a girl. Um, but for her, I feel more like it's it's about normalcy 
for her than it is necessarily girlish things because she hits all she ticks all the girl boxes. Right. You know, I mean, she she is extremely feminine. Right. And it's part of her power. Something that I love about Buffy is that her femininity is part of her identity and her power. Um, yeah. I ta- mm-hmm. I've talked before about how knowledge of fashion helps her identify vampires. It's, uh, you know, she's got this this uh, part of her, part of her superpower is noticing people's clothing. Um, right, right. But I love that that her femininity is not called out as anything other than femininity. I mean, she is just right. she is a high femme girl. Um, mm-hmm. And that is great. And it's part of what makes Buffy Buffy. She yeah. enjoys her femininity. Um, and it's not it's never presented as an obstacle to her being able to be the slayer you know mm-hmm. the show is not asking her to be less femme than she is yes but mm-hmm. it does i don't know it just creates this interesting um friction for me around the idea mm-hmm. of being a girl and yeah. what that means to her and what that means to the show um well, that's really interesting because um, I don't know if you remember because it's been a while since you've watched the whole series, but mm-hmm. there's an episode in season three called The Wish, right? Mm-hmm. In which we have a bizarro world circumstance. Cordelia makes a wish with Anya the Vengeance Demon and they um, basically, you know, reframe the world. What would happen if Buffy had never come to Sunnydale? Mm-hmm. And it ends up she's in, I think, Detroit, you know? Um, and so we see her coming to Sunnydale because the, the master is risen and they're they're doing all of this, um, all of this stuff with the master and that. Um, but when she shows up she is wearing like cargo pants um very little makeup her hair is long and braided she's paid no attention to it what makeup she has is this very very dark you know gothic eye makeup um and she's got a scar on her face she's um she's extremely tough and brittle um and sort of shut down Mm -hmm. you know emotionally it's it's very interesting i think because um because it does show that something about being in sunnydale having these friends having this very particular very specific support system allows buffy to be who she is and had she not gone there had she been through a different set of circumstances where she was the slayer without community and without friends and without support that she would lose that essential element of herself that is this high femme girl Mm -hmm. so that's an interesting commentary on that i think that's going to be fun to to kind of circle back to this discussion when we get there yeah um looking at buffy and her relationship with her femininity is something that Mm -hmm. i think is going to be a lot of fun to continue to do um and we have in this episode i mean we have an example of her thinking about her femininity in terms of what she what she wants to wear, how she wants to be perceived when she's getting dressed for her date with Owen. Yeah. Um, she's got these two dresses that I I love, by the way, that the dresses are, to my eye, identical, except for the fabric. Right. right. But she, she has, has the style of tank dress that yeah. she really loves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was it, she's got these completely different it's these different fabrics to her communicate something completely different yeah. um mm-hmm. and unfortunately i don't remember what they are but one of them is something like it's like demure and right the other one is i know she uses i think she uses the word insatiable 
I was like, really? All right. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's That's interesting. That's an interesting word. Um, But that whole scene, I feel like Mm -hmm. we need to talk about the scene where Buffy is getting changed for her date. Because why is Xander there? Yeah. She's there because Xander's one of the girls. Like we've already said, she sees him as one of the girls, you know, uh, that happened in Witch. And um, yeah, why is Xander there? Why is Xander not told to leave the room? Xander stands in front of this little mirror and then tries to adjust it. And so let's just say I have a lot of misandry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Watching her change in the mirror, you know, he's. In this scene, when he's Shadow Xander, he's deliberately Shadow Xander. And when I say that, I mean, he knows what he's doing. Watch, intentionally trying to watch her in the mirror. um, Using the question about which lipstick color she's going to wear as an opportunity to slut shame Buffy. For the Mm -hmm. hypothetical future kissing that she may be doing that will make people think she's easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then attempt, you know, later on, later in that, in that moment attempting to undermine Buffy's date by lying to Owen about Buffy not liking to be touched. Yeah. And don't then even following look at her. Buffy on her date. I right. mean, he's deliberately yes. this is yes. this is deliberate interaction manipulation with her her dating Yeah, and life. it's all pretty gross. It's and, all pretty gross. Turning his back, right? Because he's told to turn his back and then playing with the mirror deliberately knowing exactly what he's doing because when the mirror falls over and he gets caught, he has this whole moment of like, Oh no, you know? Mm -hmm. So like it is, it is, it shows such a lack of respect for Buffy in everything that he does. And the thing is like, I wouldn't mind his crush on Buffy if he wasn't so sleazy about it and so entitled about it. Yeah. Like he's, he's, you know, placing his ownership on Buffy and making it his job to like, you know, take Owen aside and tell Owen not to touch her. And Willow during that scene is just sitting there like, Oh no, but she's not even like, she should be slapping Xander. (laughs) Like I want Willow to kick him at this point because he's acting like a big jerk. And I mean, I forgive him for going on the date because he doesn't follow her on the date. He goes there with Willow to tell her that, that Giles is in trouble. So like that, I, I don't, I don't mind when he shows up on the date. Cause it's not about, you know, interrupting her time with Owen. Although I would not put that past Xander had Giles not been in deadly peril. Right. That's what he would have done because that's what he suggested to Willow when Willow was like, no, I mean, we have to go after Giles. Yeah. You know, he was, so, I mean, it was his idea. That. Yeah. It was all... his idea to go after her and do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, but it so bothers me that he's even in that room in the first place. Yeah. And yeah. the only way that I can make that okay for myself is if I had canon that he was with Willow when Buffy called Willow to come help her get ready for her date. And he just invited yeah. himself along. Like, that's the only way. <laughs> that may be it. And, like, the thing is, like, the the idea of a boy being in the room and, like, oh, my God, you know, and he turns his back. And I think that's fine. Like, honestly, I don't think that there's any problem with that, you know, with with her having a close friend who's a boy and even getting changed in front of the boy. If You know, he turns his back or whatever and gives her her privacy or she could go into the bathroom or whatever. She has the choice about who is in the room when she gets changed, you know, right. like, so that's fine. Like, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but the problem for me is the way that Xander behaves once the 
there. I don't mind that he's invited. I think that that's fine. I think that she has these two best friends and she's spending time with them. And the fact that one of them happens to be a boy is not a big deal. I believe that boys can be around girls in various states of undress and completely control themselves. Men are not monsters, you know, but we treat them as though they are. We treat them as though they, they have these base instincts and they have no control over them and they cannot be expected to behave themselves, you know, and that's ridiculous. Men have control. Men have strength. Men have honor. Men are wonderful in a lot of ways, but culturally we treat them this way. We, we put our expectations of them so incredibly low. And I think that's part of, you know, like when we talk about all of these things about the terrible men and all that, it's not like for hating men. Men are wonderful. You can have high expectations of men and they can meet them. But culturally, we set our expectations so low that oh, a lot yeah. of times men expect a cookie for jumping a hurdle. Like I turned my back and didn't use the mirror. Give me a cookie. No, that's, that's the normal thing that's expected of you because you're a human being, you know? Um, so men are capable. Men are lovely. Men are wonderful. I'm a Kinsey zero. I'm stuck with men. That's okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like I am accepting my fate for what it is. That's fine. But it's just that like when we continually send these messages and our stories that, that men are not expected to behave any better, that it's cute and funny when they do these things and, and, you know, and, and violence the trust of a woman who is, has trusted you enough to have you in the room while you're getting changed, you know? Um, and I will say that most of the men, the vast majority of the men that I've known in my life would not behave that way, would be respectful, you know? So I, I think that men are much, much better than they are necessarily portrayed in a lot of these, um, these situations. And while it makes kind of, you know, oh yeah, it's a funny joke because look at Xander, but it also has this, it has no consequence. Again, mm -hmm. he gets caught, he, he messes the mirror, nobody slaps him, yeah. you know, which should be done. The fact that the, that it's used for a joke and there's no consequence sends a very real message that men, you're not better than this. This mm -hmm. is exactly the way that you, you're expected to behave yep. and you know, there's no consequence for it. So whatever. Um, and I think that that, that leads men culturally to a place where, you know, when, when nobody expects anything of you, it sends a message that you're lesser, mm -hmm. you know, that there's something, there's something like, you know, like the, that because people don't expect when people talk down to you, it's like being spoken down to your whole life. And you're like, well, I must be stupid because this is how people treat me. Mm -hmm. This is the only thing they expect of me is that I can get up out of bed in the morning and put my shoes on the right feet. When that's all that anybody expects of you, the message sent is, you're stupid, you're, you're incapable, you know? Yeah. And I think culturally, that's a very damaging message that we send to men when we play off this kind of behavior, like it's cute, like it's expected. And, you know, and we don't expect any better from you guys. Mm -hmm. So I think that's damaging to men. Feminism is as much about, you know, about expecting from men everything that they are and they're capable of being as much as it is about expecting the same from women. Absolutely. You know, and expecting to be treated like what we are and what we are capable of. So, you know, I mean, I think I think these are the kinds of very like subtle, implicit messages that we find all over the place. And, you know, in our storytelling that that do send these really damaging messages. Absolutely. I mean, the reason that Xander works as a character in a lot of ways mm -hmm. is that it is it's that circular logic you know boys are like this so that's how they're portrayed in fiction yes so yes. then that's what young men see 
as mm-hmm. what, you know, the that is how they see themselves represented. And mm-hmm. that is how they act because that's yes. what is shown to them. It's this, I mean, and this is why representation of all kinds is important because if you yes. don't see positive examples of yourself mm-hmm. in you know visual media it's really really hard to feel like you can be anything more than a cultural stereotype absolutely and the thing is that like you know i am not saying I'm not here to like dump cold water all over everybody's good time. I mean, the jokes themselves are funny. The jokes do make me laugh. Like, I'm not going to say I have no sense of humor about it. But the problem is that you you use it that way and then you don't follow it up with with an acknowledgement that it's not okay, you know? Um, and that's where it becomes, it becomes damaging because it be, it sends an implicit message that this is ordinary. This is normalization, mm-hmm. you know? And in our stories, when people behave badly, we don't normalize that usually, except in these real specific areas. You know, when we're talking about cultural norms for women, when we're talking about cultural norms for men and our expectation of them, um, when we allow Xander to behave this way with no consequence, that's when there's the problem. It's not telling the joke in the first place. It's it's accepting that joke as being just the way things are. A boys will be boys is a, a, such a damaging idea and it's damaging to men. Mm-hmm. It is super damaging for men. So um, so I think that it's just something that, that does need to be looked at with severe side eye when we see it. And having representation of different types of men, because here we have on the other side of this, Giles. I love Giles. Giles is fantastic. Giles is everything a man should be. You know, and um, and I I love him in this episode. So what's what's your favorite stuff from Giles? Oh, in this Giles! Episode? Giles is just delightful in this episode. I, I love mm-hmm. basically I love everything he does. Um, yes, I so love in the in the uh, the morgue when yeah. he says. <laughs> when he says, uh, this chap was good enough to bunk with me until they went away. <laughs> I just. I know. He's so, so dear. And but I think my favorite Giles moment is yeah. when he says that he was going to be a fighter pilot or possibly a grocer. Oh, I know. Like, I love the realistic so plan sweet. B from 10 year old Giles. I know. Like he knew he like his fantasy was fighter pilot, but he knew that might not pan out. So right? grosser. <laughs> but he had a plan B. Right. He had a he had a backup he school, a, you know. He had a backup. Um, yeah, it's it's really nice. I, I like um in the beginning, you know, we open up with them uh in the graveyard, she dusts the vampire, he's critiquing her form, you know, giving her feedback. <laughs> Plunge and, and move um, on. Plunge and move on. Plunge and move on. I mean, it's just adorable because it, it just sounds like the kind of thing that, you know, he would have had drilled into him at the Watchers Academy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, this is how you deal with a slayer, you know. Yep. And so few Watchers actually have because there's only one at any given time, you know. Um, so I, I find that kind of adorable. Um, I also... I, I like the way he deals with Buffy when talking about her social life. 
you know, that at first he's all, you know, British and that, you know, like, no, 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 you shouldn't be. And I think part of that is because like he has a professional relationship with Buffy. And I think that he doesn't really necessarily want to know about or be involved in her personal life at all, you know. Um, But at the same time, like he he still allows her that space. He gives her warnings but he doesn't say, no, you can't. He says, this is what you have to think about that, mm-hmm. you know, you can't share this with him. You have this secret identity. Um, you know, you have to be aware of how dangerous it is to be involved with somebody who, you know, who doesn't know, but yet you can't tell them because that also is dangerous. Like, you know, there are so many things that need to be, need to be thought about. And he is very, um, you know, very straightforward about that. And, but when it comes right down to it, you know, he goes to talk to her about this lead right before her date you know and then in the end he's like okay she goes on her date he's supportive of that he's like oh I'll go check it out and make sure that everything's okay and um instead of being all you know like pissy that Buffy's going on a date even though he warned her like you know he he right. warned her nevertheless she persisted and he's like all right you go girl just as long as you know <laughs> you know and and I like that like I like the way that he he will express his opinions but he doesn't treat those opinions like like Buffy has to fall in line. Like he's not authoritarian with her. Mm-hmm. You know, he just gives his, his, his ex, you know, his experience and, and the, the benefit of his experience. And especially in that moment when he's talking about, you know, when he was told that he was going to be a watcher at the age of 10, when his future was mapped out for him before he'd had a chance to really think much about what he might've wanted, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and sharing that with her is, is this lovely empathetic thing when he's talking to her about her sacred duty, you know, what it is that she was born to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I like everything about Giles in this episode. You know, I, I love the way that he is. I love how respectful he is of her. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's really nice to see. And he really does behave the way a man should behave. The way a parent should behave. The way, definitely the way a parent should behave. And yes. Did you notice Joyce is missing? In this episode. Yeah. Joyce is a little absentee. I got to say that that uh, art gallery keeps her pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the joint is jumping because she's yeah. not, you know, this is this is Buffy's first real dating experience. We yeah. we hear in the um, when she says it's my maiden voyage, which right. I don't know why that made me laugh yeah. so hard, but it really did. Yeah. But her mother isn't present. Yeah. Or involved yeah. or no. apparently she's a single parent. She's busy. She's busting her ass, working hard yeah. to provide for her child. Like, you know, I can say at this age now, I have a certain sympathy for that. Yeah. I have a certain sympathy for the fact that it's it's not easy being Joyce, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, like it, it really is. I mean, Joyce is and it's unfortunate, I think, because Joyce is very much treated throughout these you know these episodes especially in in the beginning as as she simply shows up whenever we need somebody to push back against Buffy but we never see Joyce as being part of Buffy's regular everyday life you know right. she's not a series regular you know I mean she's she's still I, I don't know kind of a guest star I guess at this point mm-hmm. um but uh but yeah it's um it's it's kind of yeah you'd want you'd want Joyce to be there. It, Buffy feels very much like she owns that house and she just lives by herself. You know, yeah. and for all intents and purposes, it looks like that. If this was your first yeah. episode of Buffy, <laughs> right? Like, you feel like does she go, have parents? Where like, are her yeah. parents? <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So you know, 
Joyce and mundanity aside, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's some kind of interesting stuff going on here with the the religious fanaticism theme that's going on with of all things the vampires, right? Yes. Um what do you take away from from these religious themes being used in in the evil side? You know that the the religion seems to have meaning when it's evil, when it's, you know, on the good side, it's basically just, they're basically just religious symbols borrowed to kill vampires, you know, or to, to ward them off. We have Giles with the cross. We've, mm-hmm. we've seen holy water. We've seen uh, communion wafers, which apparently are very, very deadly to, I guess you throw them at the vampires like a throwing star or something. Um, and, uh, and so we have these symbols of religion that we use on the, on the side of good, but they don't really have any meaning. But then we go into this evil space and these these religious kinds of activities and themes and beliefs have have extreme amounts of meaning. So I was just wondering, like, how how you reacted to that? Well, the first thing that I noticed was that our scary murderer fellow, uh, Andrew Borba, who's played by yes. Jeff Mead, who is yes. so creepy. He's so wonderfully creepy. And um, I looked him up. We will see him again in season six's The Bargaining parts one and two. So yeah, I think he's one of the, I think he's one of the motorcycle demons, but I'm so not sure. He's yeah. I mean, he's just fantastic. But he is obviously Borba is obviously a Christian religious fanatic um, yes. based on the kinds of things that he's saying. Right. And mm-hmm. We don't, it's never really made terribly explicit, except that he reacts to the cross in vampire form. Um, well, which all vampires do. Right. But he says, yeah, why yeah. does he hurt me? Like, he doesn't understand yeah. why mm-hmm. the symbol of what is apparently his faith would hurt him. And then he sings, shall we gather at the river? Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, can vampires sing hymns without their vocal cords bursting into flames? Um, right. Apparently. <laughs> they can't be anywhere near like a wooden cross, but they can engage in, you know, right. Christian religious, you know, other elements without it necessarily being a difficult thing. So that's, that is kind of interesting. I hadn't really thought he is about such that. An, he's yeah. such an interesting character to me because he has this kind of, I mean, he's scary on the bus when he's looming over, especially the little boy. Yeah. Talking about, you know, you shall be judged. Um, yeah. But he's not he's not affiliated with the master or the vampire. No, he's he's just a misdirect. Yeah. Like we see that there's going to be this anointed one. We see this guy who looks like a vampire before he's even turned. He really like he kinda does. has that look about him. Yeah. You know? And he's ranting with all this crazy, scary stuff on the bus. And you think, oh, well, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, because we're 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 primed to look for someone like that. Although as a misdirect. It works pretty well. It does. Because while we are primed to believe that this guy is the anointed one, we're never lied to. Nobody ever says, nobody in the know ever says he's the anointed right. one. We just presume, you know, and so that's why when we have that little turn at the end where we see that the anointed one is actually the little boy, mm-hmm. um, that I think uh, is a really nice turn. You know, it's one of these things that if you go back and watch the whole thing through, we're never directly explicitly told anything different right we just go with a presumption 
Right. You know? And so that's a, that's a nice use. A misdirect works when you when you use the the momentum of the audience's um, presumptions to push toward a certain conclusion when that's not necessarily the reality. You know, it's when we do a misdirect where we directly lie to the audience that it's a bad thing. So I actually liked that misdirect. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, I thought good. that was a good one. And I just, I thought that he was so wonderfully creepy. Um, yeah. But it does raise the question of, you know, religion on the evil side. Um, religion yes. here is obviously played for a kind of sense of... Um, foreboding i think irony yeah 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 mm -hmm. and he's i mean because he's when he is he's uh speaking on the bus he's genuinely scary so yeah. i don't know what i don't know what to make of that in terms of the show and its relationship to religion other than it's a pretty good taboo to hit if you need to make yeah. someone scary in mm -hmm. um you know our our very Christian-centric American right. film and yeah. television, um, mm -hmm. you take that, you take Christianity and you twist it. And that, yes. that is an easy, it, it feels like an easy way to make something creepy. Um, no, it really is. And I, and we actually will be doing that again with Caleb in season seven, mm -hmm. you know, where he's the creepy preacher. Um, but we don't, spend a lot of time with religion. We don't take religion seriously over on the side of good, but on the side of bad, it is actually taken seriously, you know, as it is written, so shall it be. Mm -hmm. And we have the master reading this prophecy and we're using this language that is similar to this like old Testament, you know, kind of like the old ancient writings kind of thing, you know? Um, and so I find that I find it kind of interesting, mm -hmm. but I don't know that I really feel like the show is is making a strong statement. Now, for people out there who are really interested in exactly that kind of discussion, what you want to do is you want to go to a podcast called The Prophecy Guys. And these are um, two lovely, Jordan and Sam, lovely um, theologians who are thinking very deeply about exactly that kind of thing in Buffy. Um, and it's a fantastic podcast. I highly, highly highly recommend it. Um, and I will always be interested in asking these questions, but I don't have the depth of knowledge in, in theology and philosophy as it relates directly to, uh, to religious themes that those guys do. Um, but yeah, one of the things that we do, though, is we have this very Christian presumptive um, sort of default. When there's a religion, unless it's explicitly stated otherwise, we're always presuming it's Christian because America, you know, right. and because that's, that's how we are. Um, here. So I'm seeing, you know, this as a as a pseudo Christian sort of um, analogy with these guys, but maybe maybe it's not. I mean, maybe it, it speaks to something else. But I, I kind of think that it is this 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 sort of it has a Christian patina on it, I think it does. Know? And I mean, the master himself with his his outfit, I love what mm -hmm. he wears that yeah. jacket that almost looks like maybe it has some religious significance. Again, mm -hmm. um, I would want to ask somebody who knew more about the sort of signs and symbols of yeah. religious life, but there is something very, um, he, he's got this kind of dark, twisted, holy person look with his bald yes. head and then his collar and the way mm -hmm. he speaks. Um, and we've talked about the fact that he is trapped in a church of all places. Mm -hmm. Yes. So right. we're clearly 
we're clearly playing with this idea of a dark religious aesthetic. Yeah. But it's not. Yes. And we have candles. Yeah. Right. Which is a very. And they're all lined up, you know, like all around the place instead of torches, mm-hmm. which could also light a, a place where we don't have electricity. Mm-hmm. Nobody obviously has thought about getting a really long extension cord and setting up a TV for this guy who's stuck in this space. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, the reception may not be very good down there anyway. Um, but, you know, but instead of torches, which is kind of like the, the sort of thing that we would ordinarily see in that kind of space, we have those candles lined up and, and they are reminiscent of the Catholic candles, the mm-hmm. prayer candles. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's kind of interesting, too. All right. So again, I think uh, anybody who is really interested in um, in hearing somebody talk very deeply with a lot of knowledge about these religious symbols and and the role of of religious themes and philosophy within Buffy should definitely check out the Prophecy Guys. It's fantastic. I heartily, heartily recommend it. Um, and the next thing for us to discuss going back into our wheelhouse which religion (laughs) is definitely not for me um is the girl power moment of the week this is what we pull out a strong girl power moment and what is it noelle what you got i have nothing i mean nothing and i thought about this i mean the closest that i can that i come to a girl power moment for this episode is buffy saying uh, it's the 90s, the 1990s, and I can do both. And of course, he's talking about having a job and right. also having a social life. Um, mm-hmm. But then, of course, she can't. She can't have yes. both because you can't have both. So Yeah, because you can't do it all, although women are always told that they can and expect themselves to be able to and feel disappointed in themselves when they can't, even though it is it is crazy to think that you can do everything. Yeah, so I don't have a really I don't have a really strong girl power feminist moment for this episode. Yeah. It's kinda it's kinda eh for me. So it, if anybody yeah. out there you know, on Twitter, Discord, on the forums, let us know if you see something really empowering in this episode. I would yes. love to hear about it. Yes, by all means, share it. We missed it. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you'll see something we didn't see. Um, all right. So that moves us into the favorite part. Noelle, what is your favorite part of Never Kill a Boy on the First Date? My favorite part is Willow's bad acting. Um, regarding the funeral home when she's trying to tip Buffy off that like, no, we need to leave the bronze. We need to to go. Um, She says, I've always wanted to go there in this (laughs) like pointedly bad acting. It's just, it's so wonderful to see an actor um, like Alison Hannigan, who is fantastic. Oh my God. So good. To watch somebody who you know is a good actor act badly deliberately be bad yeah i think it's really wonderful when they're able to do that and allison hannigan as of this part of buffy we haven't seen anywhere near what she's capable of but knowing what this girl can do um when you see her it's just it's it's incredibly fun to just watch her evolve both as the character and as an actress you know in in this show she's amazing it's so much fun and um uh david boreanis as well doesn't have a lot to do in this episode but he's He's so great when he says, um, Owen asks him where he knows Buffy from. And he says, yeah, work, work. <laughs> just <laughs> deadpan. Like yeah. he has almost nothing to do, but you know, like it's so delightful because you know, it's coming. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So I think I think my favorite moments are the those those acting moments that give us a little hint of the wonderful that is yeah. to come. Yeah, no, it's very fun. I actually really and we didn't talk about Angel because he's not here much in this episode, but he is actually kind of really good. I was waiting for like jealous crap with Owen. Yeah. And then I was waiting for that. And I'm like, and it didn't happen. You know, I mean, he he wasn't thrilled. And I think it was because there was something that needed doing and Buffy needs to do it and she needs to know and the Buffy wasn't taking the anointed one very seriously. I think he found more annoying necessarily than, than Owen. Yeah. You know? And, um, and so when he meets Owen, he's like, yeah, hi, you know, yeah. and he's just, he's not, he's not in any way being overly friendly, you know, but at the same time, he's not being like, well, what are you doing with, you know, this girl that I might like, like there's none of that. There's none of that possessiveness that we see in Xander, you know, Right. constantly right um and so i kind of like that i like angel like the more time i spend with angel the more i like him i don't care for the broody stuff you know for the constant like when we get into all of that broody stuff um but this guy like i like him he's business yeah you know and he's he's cool yeah <laughs> but my favorite part was giles God, at the end, when he's sitting with Buffy and comforting her through this very mature choice that she's made to not be with Owen because it could, you know, cost him his life. It could put him in danger. And it almost did cost him his life. Although that was not her fault because she told Owen to stay back and he followed her when he was specifically not invited, which I found really annoying. And I would wish that that would be enough for Buffy to be like, okay, whatever, dude, you know, Um, but when she makes that choice, it's it shows this like shift in her of really recognizing the extent of her responsibility. Mm-hmm. And Giles sits down with her and he's he's so kind. He shares, you know, a story from his childhood to explain that he does have some understanding. You know, he's in by no way equating being the slayer with being told you got to go to the Watcher Academy, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but at the same time, like he he has some understanding, some, you know, minor understanding of what it is that she's feeling. And I like that he shares personally with her and that he sits down with her and takes the time to talk to her instead of just being like, well, I told you, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and it's just he's wonderful with her in that moment and I just love him yeah he shows a real respect for her in that scene um Mm -hmm. and it's just it's fantastic I love their relationship yes no their relationship is fantastic it's so fun to see it evolve you know and every time I see it's one of these things like I've always loved Giles but every time I see him you know going through this again I'm reminded of how much I love him and why I love him you know, and kind of the same thing is happening with Angel. Whenever I see Angel, I'm just delighted, you know? Yeah. That's nice. All right. Well, that's it for today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Noelle at Noelle Allowed. And use the hashtag still pretty. You can also visit the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum and join in the fun. Or you can keep Chipperish Media going to the tune of $1 a month or more and gain access to the live chat in Discord. Or you can hang out with me and Lonnie and all the Chipperish patrons who promise to beep you if there's an apocalypse. 
Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. You can also show your support for Still Pretty by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review. That's one of the most effective ways to show your support for your favorite podcasts. Or you can use the social media platform of choice to tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Absolutely. We will be back next time with The Pack, the sixth episode of season one. Until then, we'll slay the vampires and you fence their stuff. The vampire knocks Owen out with a morgue drawer door while... Okay. <laughs> Try saying oh. that fast. Morgue drawer door. Morgue drawer door. Morgue drawer door. Right. Morgue door. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> this is why after you write a script, you should always read it aloud. Read it. You know, read just to test it out. Just to make just sure it works. <laughs> but whatever. I'm, I'm into it now. I'm dedicated. 